And please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Now, as we come to this eighth chapter, we are continuing our study in the book of Matthew. And when we looked at chapters 5, 6, and 7, we saw Jesus sharing kingdom values. He was sharing with us what the kingdom of God is like. And as we saw these values expressed and articulated so well by the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a stark contrast to the systems that man puts into place. When we look at the governments that man has organized through the millennia, we find that every system fails. And there's one common denominator in those systems failing. Man. There is corruption that ensues. There are those who are guided by selfishness rather than managing and caring for the people. Every system, no matter how good the system, is doomed to failure because you have sinful, broken people leading the systems. But the Lord Jesus Christ is quite different. He's coming again where he will reign. And what Jesus promises is a different kind of system not run by a broken human being, but one who is the perfect Son of God, leading and seeing to everything that transpires in His kingdom, being right and good and just. That's something we can all look forward to with hope. Now, for the children of Israel, they had had their experiences with kings as well. And when we look in the Old Testament, about that much of it describes their failures. It's amazing when we look at how few of the kings of Israel really walked with God and sought to live righteously. And even the ones who sought to live righteously had flaws and failed. But there's coming a king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will break that mold. He will be the one who is establishing his kingdom on earth, and he will reign and rule in glory and power and truth. So when we come to Matthew chapter 8, what we find is Jesus beginning to give signs That he indeed is the promised king from the Old Testament. You see, what fascinates you when you read the Old Testament is right in the midst of even the worst of kings, many of the prophets would preach hope in a king who is coming, who would overturn all of the wickedness, all of the corruption of these human kings who were guided by sin and selfishness. And that promised one was the Messiah. Now flash forward to the first century. What we find in the first century is Israel under Roman rule. They were under a corrupt governmental system. They were under a corrupt religious system because the the truth of Judaism had been hijacked 
by people who were trying to rule in place of the coming king. And so when Jesus came as the one true king, the Messiah, what Matthew records for us is one who gave proof that he is the promised king, the one that all of the prophets spoke of. And what Matthew will do as we go through many of these stories is relate to us passages in the Old Testament that identify the king. Jesus, in doing these miracles, demonstrates to everyone that he is the promised king from the Old Testament. And that's what Matthew wants us to understand. Now, as we go into these first few stories about Jesus' identifying miracles, we see the authority of the king expressed in all of these miracles. And that's what I want us to key in on to today. We want to look at how Jesus has authority to overcome disease, to overcome spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus is able to do these things because Jesus is king, Messiah, the promised one of God. And this morning we're going to begin with the story of a leper. Now, what we find in these first four verses of Matthew chapter 8 is an instance where Jesus gave proof to the religious leaders that Jesus is indeed a miracle worker, that he is able to perform the miracles that the prophets of old said the Messiah would perform. And he does it with such clarity He does it in such a way that it's undeniable, and he offers to the spiritual leaders of Israel actual proof that he is who he claims himself to be. And that first miracle that took place was with a leper. Now, in order to really understand the power of this miracle, we have to understand how lepers were viewed in the first century. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8, and notice it says this, when he came down from the mountain, so he had been doing the Sermon on the Mount, he comes down from the mountain, what happens? Great crowds follow him, and then as these crowds are witnessing, it says, behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, in this verse, we are introduced to this leper, and it's hard for us to grasp exactly how the people in Jesus' day would have felt about a leper. For many of them, they viewed those who were afflicted with leprosy to be cursed of God. They were considered unclean. Nobody in their community would want to have contact with them. One, because of Old Testament law, but two, because of fear. If you contracted leprosy from a leper, you're done. You're ostracized from the community. You go to a leper colony, you will beg for food, and you will die an excruciating death. That's how the leper was viewed. But notice this leper. This one comes to Jesus. No doubt he was being screamed at on his way to Jesus, go away, unclean, unclean. As a matter of fact, when people saw a leper, that's what they would cry out. Unclean. 
for fear of others being exposed to the disease. And so here is this leper, and he comes to Jesus and he kneels before him. Now this kneeling before Jesus would have been an act of humility. He was humbling himself before the Lord. And he was pleading with him. And we know this because of what he says. But look at what he says right at the end of that second verse. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's throwing himself on the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a question of can you heal me. It's a question of will you heal me. And so as he asks this of the Lord, asking him to intervene to heal this leprosy. Remember, leprosy was a death sentence in the first century. He came with great faith and great expectation, knowing that if he so chose, he had the ability to heal. And look at what he says, you can make me clean. Now by clean, I don't think he's just talking about what he's going to experience as far as the healing. Being made clean would change everything about his life. All of the rejection that he felt by society, all of the consequences that came as a part of his disease, those would be removed from him because of the touch of the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is this leper, hopeful, faithful, humble, coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, when we look in Scripture, that principle of humbly coming before God to receive grace is borne out in many passages of Scripture. We never come to God and say, God, you owe me this. We never come to God and say, God, I deserve this. We come to God and we say, God, I am in need. I bring nothing to the table and I fall before you and your grace. That's what brings us into the blessing of God, the right relationship with God, that attitude of humility and need and casting ourselves on his mercy and his grace. Peter said the following, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And then the passage goes on to say this, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And here's the beautiful end to that sentence, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That is the God that we approach the one who is loving and concerned and caring. And when we come to him in humility, we can find that God will lift us up in his time. So what happens in this story? As we go to verse 3, we see the power of the Messiah displayed. Look at that third verse and notice what it says. 
verse 3, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now we're going to pause there for just a moment. It would be inconceivable for somebody to actually stretch out their hand and touch a leper in Jesus' culture and in Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, to even get close to the leper meant you were unclean. You were not able to go to temple for worship. It was the idea that the unclean would make the clean unclean. But you know what we find with Jesus? He touched him, and the clean made the unclean clean. Jesus reversed it. Jesus accomplished by that touch, taking this leper who was unclean and sick and made him a person who was clean miraculously. Look at Jesus' response after stretching out his hand and touching this leper. His words are simple. The leper asked, will you make me clean? And Jesus said, I will. And then, very simply, this command, be clean. Not by the power of the leper, but by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority over disease. And here's the amazing thing. The leper didn't start to kind of start getting better. And over time, the sores disappeared and all of the other things that accompany leprosy. I don't know if you're familiar with the disease of leprosy, but it's a horrible disease where people actually lose body parts as a result of their skin condition. That didn't happen. Immediately, he was cleansed. In other words, made clean. Isn't that a beautiful story? Imagine this leper going from hopelessness to complete amazement. Imagine the community that saw this. This person that they had seen and avoided for so long as he's at the side of the road, probably begging for food or anything that somebody could give to him to help him survive. With those four simple words, I will be clean. All of that changed and he was cleansed. You know, as I think about this, there are some parallels as to how we come to God with our sin, aren't there? None of us can help ourselves when it comes to sin. We are held captive by sin. And nothing that the leper could have done would have removed his leprosy. And I would submit to you, nothing we do can remove our sin. We have to come to the God of grace humbly and ask for the cleansing of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us from the sin that holds us. This is what the leper did, and Jesus brought healing to him. And that brings us to the fourth verse. In the fourth verse, we're giving a glimpse, given a glimpse of the purpose in healing this leper. Now, part of the purpose was an act of grace, 
and mercy for this very sick man. But a part of it was as a sign to the religious leaders of Israel so that they could see and confirm an actual miracle took place. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to him, referring to the leper, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, in Leviticus chapter 14, there is an important part of the law that requires a leper who is healed to go and demonstrate to the priest that he has been healed and that he is clean. And the idea is this would welcome him back into the worship of the people of God. With leprosy excluded from that worship. Clean, able to come in and join the fellowship. But here's the thing. When you look in the Old Testament, two cases where leprosy was healed. One of them was Miriam, the sister of Moses. She and her brother Aaron opposed Moses. And she was afflicted with leprosy as a judgment. Moses, out of compassion, interceded on her behalf, and she was healed by God. She would have been able to go to the priest at the then tabernacle, and be declared clean. The other one was outside Israel, and that's Naaman. He went into the Jordan River seven times and was healed. But that's it. So why does God put this requirement in the law when it happens so seldom? It's my conviction that he put it in the law because this was looking forward to this day with this leper would come before the priests, the religious leaders of Israel, and demonstrate a miracle had taken place, that Messiah had healed him. So why does Jesus say to this leper, say nothing to anyone? I believe that Jesus says this, and there are a lot of theories and all of it's speculation, but the speculation that makes the most sense to me is I think Jesus wanted him to go straightway to the priests, not take time to go have some celebrations with family and friends and, you know, reconnect with society. He had a mission, and that mission was to go and tell the religious leaders of Israel, Messiah is here. Authenticate what happened. This is a clear demonstration of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this leper would have been proof positive that the prophecies about the Messiah are being fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Well, we move on in the text, and this is sometime later as Jesus is going into Capernaum. And what we find in this story is a provision of mercy and grace for an unlikely group in the first century, and that would be the Gentiles. Now, bear in mind, as Jesus comes and offers himself as Messiah, he is first offering himself to Israel. 
And he offers himself to Israel because this was a part of what God was doing in offering the Messiah to the people that he had promised the Messiah to. But here's the blessing of the Messiah. The Messiah not only affects Israel, the Messiah affects the world. We are here this morning worshiping Jesus Christ if you do not have Jewish blood in you. Why? Because the Messiah has benefited the world. And what we find as we come to the fifth verse is the foretaste of that. It is Jesus sharing mercy and grace with a Roman soldier. Now once again, I remind you, the Romans were in charge of Israel at this time. And as those who are occupying Palestine... There wasn't a great connection. What's unique is we're talking about a centurion, and what we find really interesting as we look into the New Testament is centurions are mentioned a few times, and what's truly unusual is they're always cast in a pretty good light. Now, a centurion was basically the head of a Roman garrison. He had 100 soldiers under him, hence the name centurion. And so here is this man of some position... And notice what he does. We pick it up at verse 5. And he petitions the Lord. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed and at home suffering terribly. Now, this demonstrates a few things. Number one, we see that Jesus' fame was starting to spread, not just in Israel, but to those who were maybe living in Israel but wouldn't have been exposed to some of the teaching and some of the beliefs of the people of Israel. This is a Roman soldier. What we also find is this Roman soldier trusted. He believed the evidences that he had been given concerning Jesus, and he took a step that many in Israel were unwilling to do. He believed in Jesus. So much so that he acted on that belief, right? He didn't just say, you know, I believe Jesus could probably heal my servant and then sit back. He looked at it and he said, I believe Jesus could heal my servant and I believe it so much that I am willing to go and do something about it. And you know, that's the important thing about faith, isn't it? Faith isn't just looking at something and saying, yeah, this is probably true. Faith is acting on what we believe, doing something with it. Investing ourselves in the faith that we hold. Well, this is what the centurion does. He invests himself in the belief that he had that Jesus could heal his servant. And look at what he expresses to the Lord in verse 6. My servant is paralyzed and at home suffering terribly. We don't know what happened to the servant. We don't know if there was an accident. We don't know if there was a disease. But what we do know is this. He was in bad shape. So this centurion not only has faith, but he has compassion. And he's going to intercede on behalf of this servant that he obviously cared a great deal about. 
But then we come to the next part of the story in verses 7 through 10. And we see a great profession of faith. Look at verse 7. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. So Jesus responds to the centurion, I am willing to go with you to your house and heal your servant. Now this is a generous act by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Gentile. But Jesus' compassion extends beyond the Jew to the Gentile. And so he's offering up going to his house. And then look at verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, Jesus had been touching people to heal them. And centurion looks at this and he says, look, I know that if you come into my house, the house of a Gentile, you'll be defiled by your culture. Your culture will look at that as a bad thing. So all you have to do is say it. I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. But if you will, say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then look at his reasoning. After he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, only say the word. Verse 9 says this, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this. And he does it. The man understood authority. And so really what he's saying about Jesus is this. You have the authority to do whatever you choose to do, be it in proximity or over a distance. You say the words as one who is in authority And I get that. I understand. It will be done. So if you say that my servant will be healed, he will be healed. Now, is that not great faith on the part of this this, this centurion? Amazing faith that he expresses it in this way. And then look at the 10th verse. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel... Or nowhere, no one in Israel have I found such faith. No one in Israel was responding the way this centurion did. In a way, this is a shame to his own people. Look, you guys know more about Messiah than this Roman. You've been taught about the Messiah since you were little. I've shown you signs that I am the Messiah, and yet you don't have the kind of faith that this man over here has who isn't even a part of Israel. It was a challenge to those people, but it's also a beautiful picture of faith. Faith is very simply taking God at his word, believing what he says. That's the way we enter into a relationship with God when it comes to salvation, isn't it? I'm not saved by the actions that I do. I am saved by taking God at his word That Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and that is enough. I don't need to see it. I don't need to have God come down and demonstrate his presence. I believe it. I trust it. And I am saved. This centurion 
and his faith challenged the people of Israel. Look at the rest of the story starting at verse 11. Matthew records Jesus extending a promise that the centurion will be the first of many. Look carefully at the 11th verse and notice what Jesus says. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. You know what that's saying? What Jesus is saying is there will be Gentiles in the kingdom. Now, for many of the Jewish hearers of this, they're going, what? We thought it was just us, right? They may come to us, but they're not going to sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Come on. Jesus bursts that bubble and talks about the fellowship that Gentiles, people who are outside Israel, will have sitting around the table at the kingdom of God. We sit around the table at the kingdom of God, folks, because of God's grace and because of Jesus Christ. A great promise. But you know, it's also a challenge to the thinking of the children of Israel. Many of the people in Israel think, hey, I have a seat at the table in the kingdom because I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, so of course I have a seat at the table in the kingdom. Look at what the text goes on to say. Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, wait a minute. He's speaking to Jewish people. By virtue of me being a person who has this connection with God because of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of course I'm going to be in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, no, some of you are going to hell. That's what he means by a place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what he's saying to them is this. God does not have spiritual grandchildren, only children. You don't come into the kingdom by virtue of your ethnicity, your heritage, your connection with somebody who actually believes. You come in by your own faith, by your own relationship with God. This is such an important message, I think, for those who are raised in a Christian family so important for us to grasp. I do not have a relationship with God because my parents have a relationship with God. I don't have a relationship with God because my spouse has a relationship with God. I am not a Christian because I live in a so-called Christian nation. I have a relationship with God when I come to terms by faith with who Jesus is and trust Him. That's the warning to the children of Israel. And then finally in the 13th verse, Jesus turns to the centurion and he says, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Again, 
not where the servant gradually got better. And it was kind of around the time that the centurion went and asked of Jesus immediately, boom, right then, right there, healed as a demonstration of the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last part of this passage. We find the prominence of Jesus' ministry growing daily. And when we come to the next part of this passage, we find Peter's mother-in-law healed immediately. Now Peter, the apostle Peter, apparently was married. As far as I can tell, that's how you have a mother-in-law. And going to the mother-in-law's house, they found that his mother-in-law was sick with a fever. And look at what the text goes on to say. He touched her hand, and her fever left, and she rose and began to serve. Now, in this part of the story, what Matthew is bringing out with clarity is, again, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to heal. Here is this faithful woman who probably wanted to get up and serve. Hospitality is a really big deal in the Middle East. So for her to be bedridden because of a fever would have been terrible. And by the way, remember this. In ancient times when a person had a fever, they did not have treatments and medication to bring down the fever. Even today, a fever is a serious thing. But in the first century, scary. Because many didn't survive. So here is Peter's mother-in-law. She wanted to get up and help, but no doubt couldn't get up and help. And this is what we find. That Jesus simply touches her hand and her fever left. But not just the fever leaving. It wasn't like the fever broke. Look at this. She got up and started serving now, I'm on the back edge, I hope, of a bug. And when the fever breaks or the bug starts to wane, you're not out of the woods, right? <laughs> you feel it for a little while. And I'll tell you, sometimes after a bug, you know, you're two or three days just kind of shaking off the cobwebs. Not the case with Peter's mother-in-law. Healed immediately as a demonstration of the power and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's stressing Jesus' authority over disease. Then we come to verse 16. And when we come to the 16th verse, really Matthew condenses many healings. It's kind of like we, we, we had a, a microscope on these couple of cases, the leper, the centurion, Peter's mother, but now it's broadened and we're looking at groupings of people who are healed. And look at what verse 16 shares with us. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick. Now, in our experience, perhaps most if not all of you have had no experience in seeing demon-possessed people. 
I have the conviction that Satan likes to keep a lower profile in a secular society. You see, if he doesn't show his hand in a secular society, then people will just say the only things that exist are what I can see, smell, taste, and touch. He's active behind the scenes, and in some pockets of the United States, demon activity is definitely something that takes place, but keeping a lower profile. In many of the third world countries, it's quite different. There is a high profile because demons intimidate people in order to keep them under bondage. I've spoken with missionaries who have served in Haiti and Trinidad, uh, missionaries who have served in some communities within Africa and India, and demon possession is more prevalent where idolatry is more prevalent. Because the idea is this, those demons inspire the idolatry, and they will use spiritual demonstrations to keep people under their authority. In the first century, demon possession was something that was seen. And so what we find in this text is Jesus cast them out. Now, why does Matthew discuss this in this general way in this part of the passage? Again, what is he establishing? The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has authority over disease, but he also has authority over demons. He has spiritual and physical authority. Why? Because he is Messiah. So then we find the last part of this passage, and it says that all of this was done, and this is found in verse 17, as a prophecy that is fulfilled, identifying him as Messiah. Look at what he says, and to the centurion Jesus said, excuse me, wrong part, 17, (laughs) This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, this quotation or citation is from Isaiah chapter 53, a strong messianic prophecy. And I'd like you to just listen to what is said, an excerpt from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs, And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, the part that I read from Isaiah 53 is moving forward from this ministry that's described here of healing and casting out demons to the cross. Jesus bore all sin and what sin produces on the cross to bring us deliverance as the Savior. You see, while Isaiah talks about the coming king and kingdom, 
he also reveals a very important part of all of that. That Jesus died on the cross to bring Gentiles into the kingdom. To bring healing. To bring salvation to the lost. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's our takeaway? Jesus has absolute authority. But listen, you could know that Jesus has absolute authority and still not be right with him. The question is, what do I do with that knowledge? And the answer as to what we need to do with that knowledge is this. I need to put my personal faith and trust in the Son of God who came into this world, gave irrefutable proof that He is the promised one of God who lived among us, died on the cross for my sin, rose again, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. I need to entrust myself to Him and say, my faith tells me that you are Savior and that faith moves me to the action of putting all my hope in you as the one who saves me and brings me into right relationship with you. I think there are a lot of people, I fear there are a lot of people who know facts about Jesus Christ. But it's so much more than just being able to pass a Sunday school test. It is coming to terms in your heart between you and God as to who Jesus is to you. When we place our faith in Jesus, God gives us forgiveness. We're delivered from the worst disease of all, sin and death. And we're brought into right standing with God. May God grant us the wisdom to act on our faith by trusting Christ as our Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the call that this gives us to trust in the Jesus who by many proofs was demonstrated to be the Son of God. Teach us, God, to not just hold facts about Christ in our mind and in our heart, but let it move to our hearts where we give our hearts to you. Trusting by faith the promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.